All right, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took up the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we now pray thee that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see your glory, as did Jacob have but a glimpse of it, when thou opened up the gates of heaven to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning I want to cover really verse 12 and verse 13. I want to cover, I want to talk about that ladder that Jacob saw, that heavenly glimpse that he had. So I want to spend uh, this morning talking about angels and how they serve God and how they certainly glorify God. Um, I normally don't like to talk about something like that because I don't want our focus to be on angels, but rather be on God, who is the director of angels. He rules and reigns over all things, including angels. And I think we can appreciate how some religions flip things around and pray to departed saints and pray to entities other than God. And angels would certainly be in that group of, of um, created beings that they uh, look to instead of looking to God himself. Um, our deacon read for us this morning, uh, Revelation chapter I was just really after one verse in particular. I wanted us to appreciate the heavenly host that exists. And um, there are so many things that we cannot see. In particular, in that verse, there was the um, thousands and thousands of angels. The Greek word is myriads and myriads. It's just an innumerable company of angels that exist and that serve God. Um, we are blind to that. We are so easily caught up in what things we can see, the temporal things. Scripture says the temporal things are 
uh, in, are visible rather, and the invisible things are eternal. And this is where our focus is, this is where our frustration is. We get caught up in the things of the world because that's what we see, feel, touch, and hear, but our sight is sorely limited. I think you can appreciate the difference between the things that we can hear and the things that your dog can hear. You know, if you blow a dog whistle, you can't hear it, but the dog can hear it because their range of hearing far exceeds our own. In like manner, our vision is limited to a very narrow frequency of light so that uh, if you have a broken arm, for example, and you go to the doctor, they will use x-rays, light at a different frequency to see what's inside your arm. The same thing with an MRI, that there are other wavelengths that are out there that we cannot see. Um, if God were to expand our vision, we could probably see what Jacob saw there for a brief time. So in verse 12 and verse 13 of Genesis 28, the Lord says, or we can, uh, the Bible says that there are angels of God ascending and descending. And so we have here a snapshot of what Jacob saw. He gets a glimpse of the heavenly portal, is what he calls it, the gates of heaven. And um, he doesn't understand what it is. <laughs> And I don't think most Christians understand what is going on there either until they get into the Bible a certain um, depth and can appreciate how God is working all things out for our good. So he was raised in a Christian household, and I think he's got little or no appreciation of all the things that are going on around him, just like I think we are ignorant of all the things that are going on around us. We read here that angels are ascending and descending, which means if they're ascending, they are already here in Jacob's life. They have been watching over Jacob just as they watch over all of God's elect, and they have undoubtedly been doing it as dispensed by God since his birth. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord says, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Clearly, Jacob is an heir of salvation, as was Isaac and was Abraham. They are heirs of salvation. So God has sent forth ministering spirits to those individuals as he has sent them forth in all of our lives. Well, the question here is, are they not all ministering spirits? Well, the ones that work on the positive side of the equation, we would agree that they are um, working forth to minister to the heirs of salvation. But in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, we can appreciate that there are some angels that did not keep their first estate. Um, in Revelation chapter 12, we can read about the rebellion that took place. There were angels that rebelled with Satan. They did not keep their first estate. Those individuals were cast down to this earth. And some, of course, are reserved in chains of darkness, reserved unto judgment. So in this angelic host that um, exists, there are the positive ones that do God's work and are very faithful in serving him and instant in their servants, service of him. And there are others that do the bidding of Satan and they sow misery, mayhem, murder. They foment lies and deception throughout all the world since Genesis chapter 3 until the second coming of the Lord. They will be forever or ever engaged in things that are in opposition to um, the good work, uh, all the work of God is good, but you, I think you can appreciate that they endeavor to frustrate the design of God for his beloved people. 
Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air, and he works in the children of disobedience. So he's dis um, sowing discord everywhere he goes, and he works, and since most of the people are not Christians, most of the people are the children of disobedience, he's very active in the world, making a mess out of, uh, out of this world. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, again, speaking of Satan, he is the god of this world, and he blinds the minds of those that don't believe so they cannot see the glorious gospel of Christ. So once again, Satan is directing his ministers. Some of them appear as ministers of righteousness, and they oppose um, God. And they um, make it, um, they blind the people that cannot see or cannot hear the gospel. So they are further blinded and entrenched and steeped in their um, disbelief. Um, with respect to the church, he's got his people in the church. As I said, they come as ministers of righteousness, preaching false gospels, um, and they look very much like, um, well, they look very much like saints. They are sheep in wolves. No, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Thank you. I just seen if you're paying attention. They are <laughs> wolves in sheep's clothing. They look very much like um, people that do preach the gospel, but they, of course, preach a false gospel. And I'm certain you would agree with me that they are very much alive, well, and active in the churches um, today. Um, so throughout all the ages, ages, there are fundamentally two types of angels. There are the holy angels, and there are the fallen angels. And as we, as was Jacob, however unknowing, are at war with the fallen angels. We are at war with the fallen angels. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we are told to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of, of the devil. In uh, Revelation 12:9, the Lord tells us that Satan deceiveth the whole world. So we must put on the whole armor of God, which of course means to put on Christ. If you read through all of the things we're supposed to put on there in Ephesians chapter 6, essentially you're being told to put on Christ. So you read your Bible, you study, and you pray so that you can appreciate what wiles the devil may try to use against you to cause you to stumble and fall in sin so that he can discredit you and your testimony about God. So, as we are in this world, we can appreciate, particularly after the last couple of years, that there are so many lies that we have to deal with every single day as we go about our business. Not only do we deal with our own sin and the sins are the effects of the sins of other people, but we are constantly at variance with the world and its devilish ways. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So I want you to appreciate that there is an organizational structure in the heavenly realm, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. There's an organizational structure in the heavenly realm that rule and reign in whatever dominions, principalities, and powers that God has given them, and we are at war with them, and they are at war with us in a very organized way. So here in Genesis 28:12, we see that Jacob has but a glimpse 
into this invisible spiritual realm of angels that here serve for um, his benefit. They serve God for his benefit. And I say that because in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus is speaking, and he makes reference to this occasion, and he likens himself, who he calls the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the ladder upon which the angels of God ascend and descend. So, again, we should appreciate that these angels that we see here as are the ones that ascend and descend on the Lord are ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto Jacob. Though Jacob might think he's alone, and if you read through uh, this section here in 28, it sounds very desolate. You know, he, he is alone in terms of the physical realm, but he's not alone in the spiritual realm. Not only is God with him, but so are the angelic ministering spirits that God has sent. And so I think this is something that we, the elect of God, who are all heirs of salvation, can appreciate is that God has sent ministering spirits unto us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we can appreciate that he has given us the earnest deposit of the Spirit. We are partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Ghost indwells us. And so God himself personally will never leave us nor forsake us. But we should also appreciate that we are attended by angels which are under his direction. When we consider Jacob, we can appreciate one of the reasons that he went out from Beersheba to Padanaram was because he feared that Esau would kill him. And that fear is rooted in a lack of faith and failing to appreciate who God is and what God can do. Um, failing to appreciate that the promises of God that he is going to receive, the blessing of Abraham, he thinks that they might be frustrated by some means. Uh, we talked about this with respect to Isaac um, and respect to Abraham and respect to Sarah and respect to um, Rebecca. All of these people do the same things that we do. I was talking to a fellow the other day and we were entering into an, a contractual agreement and I said to him, well, I trust God. And he was a Christian. He goes, well, amen, I trust God too. He didn't know because I didn't have time to explain that I was being sarcastic. I was endeavoring to manipulate the situation so that it would work out to the advantage of the work that I was doing, just like Abraham and his wife do, Sarah, and just like Isaac and Rebecca do, and just like Jacob does. This is common among Christians that we try to manipulate things towards the way we think they should go. Um, and we do that because we don't think God is working behind the scenes, turning the hearts of the king like a river of water, whither wherever they should go, excuse me that he's working in the hearts of people to make everything work out the way he wants it to go. So we are continuously in this uh, battle with our flesh uh, where we try to manipulate situations, manipulate God towards our advantage. And so um, Jacob tries to do that too. He's failing to trust God, so he's fleeing because he thinks Esau can kill him, which of course if Esau does, then he would receive none of the blessings of God. So it's not going to happen. So. Um, Again, we all fall into this particular sins. Uh, we are fearful for our lives as though God, through his angelic host, or God just all by himself, might not be able to keep our enemies from killing us. So you can find all sorts of uh, 
Christians, I'm going to put that in quotes on YouTube, that tell you how to be a prepper and how to, you know, work a gun and how to do all of these, take these self-defense stuff, how to engage in all these activities, uh, because when the bad guys come to you, God somehow will be impotent in that particular situation. But God is not, as we shall see as we go through here. So here Jacob gets a glimpse into the spiritual realm. However, as he moves forward in his life here, as he works for Laban, he's going to forget about that vision that he has. When it comes time for Jacob to return, Genesis 31.3 is where you can see this, God will call him and again reassure, reassure Jacob that he is with him. And as he gets closer to the land of his father, right before he's going to meet Esau, we read in verse 1 of Genesis 32 that the angels of God meet him. In Genesis 32.1, the angels of God meet him. Apparently, Jacob has always been under the watchful eyes of God, as is manifest there in Genesis 32 and in here in Genesis 28. Um, and so we read in verse 2 of Genesis 32 that when Jacob saw them, when he saw the heavenly host, he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two hosts. Jacob sees the host of God, and in verse 6 of Genesis 32, we note that he is about to see the host, I'll put that in quotes, the host of Esau, which consists of 400 men. In verse 7, we read that he is greatly afraid and distressed. He's seen the host of God. He knows that 400 of Esau's men are coming against him, and he is greatly afraid and distressed. So the angel of the host of God is with him, and yet he fears the host of men. So while he devises a plan to pacify Esau's wrath and mitigate potential harm to his family and flock, the good news is that he prays to God for God's protection. Protection that he has always had, given the promises of God and the um, visible revelation of the angelic host. He has always had it, but nevertheless, his heart is moved to pray for it. And that's a good thing. So God, I think, has set these things before us for a couple of reasons. One is for us to appreciate that we all struggle with the sin of failing to trust God, failing to appreciate his omnipotent umbrella under which we abide. And the second reason is to teach us a little about the angelic administration by which he watches over us and keeps us in the way. Um, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to Jacob's failure to appreciate the angelic host than I am of our own generation because we have the whole body of the scriptures in front of us. We have the entirety of God's word to make reference to. Now, I can appreciate that Jacob had a vision, but if it were me, I would probably, after a time, begin to question whether or not I really saw what I saw and whether or not it was really true what God said to me. So I appreciate that I can get on my knees, pray, and open God's Word and read the promises time and time again. Now, in Psalm 91, verse 11, we read that God shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. And so I take that as a promise that God is going to watch over me, and we know that um, he does preserve his saints, and they uh, will get to glory. But that is one of the means and agencies by which we get there is through the angelic host that he has directed 
to keep us in the way. He's got them watching over us. They are God's messengers and his ministering spirits to us. Um, and so that's similar to the vow that um, Jacob makes back in Genesis 28, verses 21 and 20, where he says, if he is kept in the way, then the Lord is his God. And that's a fact. If Jacob is kept in the way, then he was kept in the way because the Lord God kept him in the way. And he's using um, angels to help keep him in the way. So that we all have angels looking over us um, can be inferred, I think, from several verses in the scripture. When we look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, the Lord is speaking in particular of a little child and a little child that believes in him, that's a qualifying statement, and he makes, this, the Lord says that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So we appreciate that a believing child has um, in heaven an angel that is beholding the face of the Lord, the face of um, God the Father, which no doubt God the Father would direct them to um, exercise or execute his will to watch over that particular child. So just as Jacob and other people have angels watching over them, so do children um, with respect to the war against God's elect. We can appreciate that it starts at the moment of conception, which would include covering abortion, because the war against men begins at the moment of conception. And so that's one of the reasons why we abort so many children in this country is because there's a war. It's all about killing people. Um, and that war certainly includes children. It's not just against adults, those that are old enough to read and understand the Bible, but it begins from the moment of conception against God's elect. And if Satan doesn't know who those are, by golly, he'll just kill everybody. Um, which he does in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 22, when Pharaoh orders the death of all the baby boys. So the war begins immediately, and Satan has a scorched earth attitude towards that, that he would destroy um, God's elect and destroy the line of Christ in particular. We say that again in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, where Herod destroys, uh, where Herod orders the death of all children, not just boys, but all children, aged two years and younger, not only in the city of Bethlehem, but just to be sure, it says, in the coasts round about. Um, I can't imagine um, somebody engaging in that. And I know that since that time, we've certainly had many evil things take place, certainly under the Nazis where they took children, put them in boxcars, sent them to concentration camps to kill them. I can't imagine what it would have been like to go home from work that day, have your wife ask you, oh, how'd work go today? Oh, I had a really rough day at work. Oh, you poor thing, what did you do? Well, I had to kill babies. I had to go and take babies and smash them against the wall and run them through with a sword. And I just had a very difficult day because there were just so many babies um, for me to kill. But that's the reality of it. I, I have no idea what they would have gone home and what they would have said to their spouses, uh, what they would have said to their family, that they engaged in that kind of an activity. But we read Satan works in the children of disobedience. They will do his will, and they indeed do his will. But again, I remind us here that all things work together for good to them that love God, including these horrific events in, in history. Um, we can appreciate as we walk through the Bible here that angels figure prominently around the birth of Christ. In Luke 1.13, we know that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias 
and told him that his wife would bear him a son, which would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. Then we read that the angel Gabriel appears unto Mary and told her that she would conceive by the Holy Ghost, which would be called the Son of God, which is literally true since she conceived by the Holy Ghost, the Father is God. In Matthew 1.20, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream consistent with the things the angel has already shared to tell him that Mary has conceived by the Holy Ghost and he should not fear to take her to wife. In Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the angel of the Lord announces the birth of Christ to the shepherds that are in the field. And then later, because of what Herod is going to do, the angel of the Lord directs Joseph to take his family into Egypt for safety, uh, where they stay until the angel of the Lord directs him back into Israel. That's all in Matthew chapter 2. During Christ's ministry, we read that angels ministered to Christ after his temptation by Satan, who we know himself is an angel. So the angelic host is, as I said, is very busy, not only in our lives, but was busy with Christ himself when he was God manifest in flesh. In Luke 22:43, we read that on the eve of Jesus's crucifixion, while he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane, an angel appeared unto him strengthening him. Upon his resurrection, it is an angel of the Lord that announces the resurrection to the women that are at the sepulcher. At his ascension from the Mount of Olives, when the disciples have walked over with the Lord and he ascends into heaven, it is the angels that reassure the disciples that Jesus will return. As for the gospel itself, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 tells us Quote, that the angels desire to look into these things. They desire to look into the things of the Lord. They desire to look into the gospel and understand what things God is doing in these rebellious people. How is it that God would condescend to take on the form of the flesh, to take on the likeness of sinful flesh, to become a man? How is it that he would suffer and die for a people that are at enmity with him. Whereas angels fall into one of two camps, they are either holy, always obedient and serve God, and the other camp where they have rebelled and they ever serve Satan in opposition to God, how is it, or why is it that God would take on the form of flesh, subjecting himself to a people that rejected him and changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than God. It's Romans 1.25. Why would God do that? Why would God um, be mindful of men? Psalm 8.4 asks that question in a rhetorical sense. What is man? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And so the angels desire to look into these things. We are told that when a sinner repents, they rejoice in heaven. That's Luke 15.10. When a sinner repents, they rejoice over it. And in Luke 16.22, that's the parable of, uh, that's not the parable, but the story of Lazarus and the rich man, that when the uh, Lazarus dies, that he is escorted into the bosom of Abraham by the angels. Um, when the gospel was, go, was to go to the Gentiles, the angels were very much involved in that. They directed Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.26. 
in Acts chapter 10, it is the angels or are the angels that tell Peter that he needs to call for Cornelius and the angels tell Cornelius that he needs to go to Peter so that he will hear the gospel. So they're very much, again, ministering to God's elect with the benefit that they will hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, verse 18, we read that the apostles, having been imprisoned, are delivered from prison by an angel. Acts chapter 12 is the occasion where Peter himself is freed from prison. So I think we can appreciate from all of these examples that angels are God's ministering spirits. They're sent forth by God to attend to us, to keep, to watch over us and keep us in the way as directed by God. And so I want you to appreciate my qualifying statement. They are sent forth by God and they are directed by God because they serve God. In Revelation 19, you'll read, uh, verse, 19, verse 10, Revelation 19.10, that's where the uh, John has seen a vision and he falls down before an angel and he says, no, don't do that. <laughs> Stand up. I am a fellow servant. Angels are our fellow servants, um, servants of God. There is no place in Scripture where it can be inferred that we might petition or pray to an angel for help of any kind. Nowhere in Scripture is it even inferred that you would pray to an angel for help of any kind. We are ever to make our requests known unto God and to trust God in all things. And this Jacob got right. Even after seeing the angels of God, I'm back in Genesis 32 too, even after seeing the angel of God, in verse 11 we see that Jacob prays to God for his deliverance from his brother Esau. So the angels are but God's messengers and his instrumentalities by which his will is executed on earth as it is in heaven. So when we're praying the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, that we would pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is certainly executed everywhere, but there's a parallel between what takes place in heaven and what takes place in earth. And so God's will will prevail in both places. And so with respect to God watching over people, we see that in the Old Testament as well. Um, one of the occasions I like in particular is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, because we can appreciate the great faith that Elijah had uh, on this occasion. In 2 Kings 6, 16, we read about how the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great host to Dothan to capture Elisha. What preceded that was that the king of Syria had been trying to take, uh, go to war with um, Israel, and he'd been frustrated by it because every time he was going to lie in wait, um, his plans were revealed to the king of Israel, and um, he was frustrated. So he asked the question, how is this possible that they always know what I want to do? And everybody seems to know the answer but him because they reply, well, what you say in your bedchamber, Elisha knows because God is telling him. So he thinks he's going to go and capture Elisha, and then he'll have the advantage over Israel. So Elisha is set before us as a faithful man of God who trusts in God and understand how God works. He did not fear, though the city of Dothan, in which he was, was surrounded by the enemy. He's surrounded by chariots, 
and horses and chariots and the host of Syria. So when his servant asks him, what shall we do? He responds, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. In other words, the angelic host that is with us is more than the angelic host that is with them. He's not saying that our angelic host exceeds the number of the earthly host, the host of men, but he's saying the host that is with us is, is greater than the host that is with them. So there's an angelic host about both people because there's this great spiritual warfare that is taking place. In 2 Kings 6.17, we read that Elisha prayed and said, again, he's praying to God. He's not praying to the angels. He says, Lord, I pray thee, open his, that would be the servant's eyes, so that he may see. In other words, give him spiritual sight so that he can see the eternal realm that is invisible to us, the realm in which we live in the midst of, where we, God's elect, are ever at the center of these conflicts because we are the object of God's love and affection and the object of Satan's desire to destroy as a means to frustrate God's will, if that were possible, but it is not possible. In Romans 8.31, we are reminded, if God be for us, who can be against us? Down in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 38 39 of Romans 8 says, Neither death nor life, and then he specifically says, nor angels, of which you'll recall Satan is an angel, neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present right now, nor things to come, anything in the future, nor height nor depth, nor any other creature. The word creature means that's anything that's created. Nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So back in 2 Kings 6, 17, we read that he's praying to the Lord that his servant may see. We read, And the Lord opened his eyes, and the young man, and he saw, he opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, Quote, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. They're not round about Dothan. The uh, chariots of fire are round about Elisha, which is the object of God's love. So I want us to appreciate, again, that the host is not surrounding the city. It's around God's elect. It's around he who is an heir of salvation. If you'll continue reading, you'll find that the Syrian host was temporarily blinded. And then they were led captive into Israel, and the capital, they were led captive into the capital of Israel, where they are fed with bread and water, symbolizing the gospel, and then they're sent back to their master. So here you have a wonderful example of where the angels, who are fellow servants of God, are cooperatively used of God with Elisha to promote the gospel. Second Kings 19:35. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, we read about how the angel of the Lord destroyed the Assyrian host that had come up against Jerusalem. God had determined that the Assyrians would take the ten northern tribes into captivity, but not the southern two. They would not take Jerusalem. And so on one night, the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. 
So we should keep that in mind that God can destroy every enemy that might come up against us. If God be for us, who can be against us? The answer is no. Neither you nor I nor Jacob ever have anything to fear from man or any creature or any angelic host or otherwise. We know that all things were created by him. In Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And so when the Lord is asking that rhetorical question about what shall separate us from the love of God, of God and he runs down the list of things, he says, he mentions um, principalities and powers and dominions. None of these things can separate you from the love of God. So in Colossians 1.16 and also in Ephesians chapter 6, we should appreciate that the angelic host has a scope of authority and power. They have principalities and they are organized very much like our governments are organized here uh, as a monarchy. So it's not just like angels are running, you know, helter-skelter and, and, and just creating mayhem. They have principalities and powers and authorities that were given to them by God the Father. And we get a glimpse of that in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19. On that occasion, the prophet uh, Micaiah has been brought before King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. Uh, they want to know how they're going to fare in the battle, and um, uh, Micaiah tells him that in their impending battle with the um, Syrians that Ahab will be killed. But you see up there in the heavenly host, um, you see the Lord is sitting upon his throne, and the host of heaven is standing by him on his right hand and on his left hand, ever ready to do his bidding, which they then do. They, one uh, fellow, one angelic individual says that he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And so he does. He goes down and he spreads a lie, which they then believe, even though the truth has been set before them by, uh, via Micaiah, the true prophet of God. And so Ahab falls in battle. In Daniel chapter 10, we can appreciate the scope of authority, um, which is granted by God and subject to God and is exercised by certain angels. Because in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has been praying for, quote, three full weeks, seeking understanding. You get down to verse 13 of Daniel 10, and it says that an angel, we can read that an angel is sent to him, but was withstood 21 days which accounts for the three full weeks he was praying. The angel assures him that the moment you prayed, God heard the prayer and he sent me, but he was withstood by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So we can appreciate that there is a angelic dominion that includes ruling over the country, the kingdom of Persia. You get down to verse 20, and that's where the angel departs, but he's talking to Daniel and he tells Daniel that he will again go fight with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that angelic prince. And when he's gone forth, the prince of Grecia will come. And if you know your history, you know that represents the order of the nations that came against Israel. First came the Medi-Persians, and they were followed by the Greeks. 
So there is an angelic uh, organizational structure, um, principalities and powers that are in play, that are um, orchestrating events, global events, throughout the course of history that we can't see and don't know anything about except for what we read about in the scriptures. So from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it is replete with examples of angels who that are entering in um, and uh, engaged in activities as they are directed by God. There are the angels, of course, that serve God and those that endeavor to subvert God. Um, however, whatever they do, they are all advancing God's redemptive work. They're all working together for the good of God's elect. Whether principalities and powers are visible or invisible, they are created by God and for his pleasure are and were created. That's Revelations 4.11. Everything is created for God. He has authority over all things and they serve him. They are created for his pleasure. So as our deacon read from Revelation chapter 5, about the myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels that appear before the Lord. That's affirmed again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, where it speaks about us coming to Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, quote, and to an innumerable company of angels. So when we look at the world that's around us that we cannot see, there is a lot of things going on that are for our benefit. God's working out his whole plan of redemption. He's working out his whole plan whereby he's going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth um, through so many things that we cannot see and would not appreciate if we did not have the Bible in front of us from which we can make reference to. So again, I would reassure us that we certainly have nothing to fear from this world, nothing to fear from man. Jacob has nothing to fear. God is watching over Jacob every step of the way, just as he does over all of the people whom are heirs of salvation. He watches over us every step of the way. There is not a thing that can ever happen to us that God has not ordained should happen to us. And so we need never be fearful, but ever trust in him for all things. Amen.